The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy says in chapter 3, verse 1, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them be also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God Almighty, we thank you for your word. We also thank you, Father, for teaching us what it means to be servants in working in your kingdom. Each and every one of us here, Father, who are Christians, know that there is a calling on us not only to love Jesus Christ and respect him as our Savior, but also to proclaim that message to the world. But dear God, if our life and our way of living and our way of doing does not honor Christ, does not reflect the love of Christ, then dear God, we do not proclaim your gospel at all. So God, I pray this morning through your word that as we look at Paul's instructions on church leadership, that those of us who are not in church leadership also remember that this message is for us. That we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just in words, but in deed, in our attitude, in our spirit. And then if any of that is not in line with your love and your will, Father, that you would show us where we fail and that we would return to you. Please speak to us in your word today, Lord. This is your house. God, we are your people. We need to hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Please have a seat. Let's understand the setting here of Paul's letter to Timothy. Last week we looked at the letter of Titus and Paul's instruction to Titus as he was to establish churches on the island of Crete. Timothy is a young man in the faith that Paul also sees as his spiritual son in the faith, just like he calls Titus the same. Timothy is charged to stay in Ephesus and to uh, guide and establish the churches there in and around Ephesus. Timothy apparently was a young man. And I don't know about you, but uh, young men who uh, have not yet been seasoned in life sometimes may not have the confidence necessary uh, to do well in the kingdom of service. And so Paul is writing to Timothy for encouragement. This is the first letter that Paul writes to an individual and not a church. All the other epistles leading up to this one are Paul writing to churches directly. Now he's writing to an individual. He's writing to this young pastor of these churches in Ephesus, and it must have been important enough for Paul to make sure these, these churches were were established well, and that they were led well. There was something about Ephesus that was important to the kingdom work. Ephesus was a very 
important strategic city for econo- for for the economy uh, was important for culture was important in the Roman Empire Ephesus was necessary for the churches to succeed there but not just succeed from worldly standards but to succeed from godly standards so Paul is writing to Timothy Some of the problems that were apparently rising in the church in Ephesus that necessitated this letter from Paul was that there was a growing rogue leadership in the churches in Ephesus. We see this in chapter 1. That apparently some folks had come into the church and they were teaching what they thought was right, but they were focused on the law. They were teaching legalism. They were teaching, if you just check off the box, then we will be good Christians. And they thought that because they were eloquent and they could, they could speak well, they must be leaders in the church. And according to Paul, they were not. Read chapter 1. So there's this growing leadership structure that was clearly steering God's church away from the gospel and into worldly favor. There was also this emphasis of the law that not only was to keep the church members in check, but also, but more so, to benefit the leaders themselves. (laughs) Oh, you know, I am so, you know, like the Pharisees, I am so holy and righteous, I keep the law. You, You know, in the Gospels, Jesus dealt with this all the time. Now Paul is seeing the same thing happening in the churches in Ephesus. Lastly, these leaders, they had, they had charisma. I mean, we cannot fault them for that except for how they use that charisma. God will use leaders who have influence for the, for the proclamation of the gospel, and God will do so well. But when a rogue leader, someone who is more interested in their own advancement, uses that charisma for their own pride, then the gospel of Jesus Christ suffers. So this is what's happening in the churches in Ephesus. These leaders, these rogue leaders, not only were charismatic and they, and they drew the favor of the church membership, in other words, they drew a great following. <laughs> and they drew such a great following that the people made sure that they were paid well. That's part of the problem here. Now, I am not one to say that leaders of the church are not to be paid. I mean, Paul speaks about this often, that apparently Peter was supported by the churches as a whole to the point that he was able to travel freely with his family. His wife traveled with Peter all the time. So there is no, there's nothing here in Scripture that says that leaders should not be paid if necessary. Not all congregations can do so. What it, The problem here is that these charismatic leaders, these false leaders, were in it for the money. <laughs> they were in it for the fame. They were in it for their own pride and arrogance. You see the problem? What Paul is writing about to Timothy here is he's giving us examples of what good leaders are in Scripture, not just for a leadership sermon. I was telling Rhonda as I was thinking through these sermons over the last few weeks, I said, really what I'm thinking through, I'm really afraid because these sermons really are geared mostly towards seminarians, those who, or maybe those who feel like a calling into the deaconship or into the eldership, those who feel like a calling into leadership. These are passages that we study together. But I think there's a lot here in this text and in the last sermons for the last few weeks that is beneficial for the church as a whole. From here in 1 Timothy, Paul is actually showing us what are, what are the good examples of leadership in contrast to the false leadership of chapter 1, not to teach about leadership per se, but more importantly to teach what does it mean to be a good Christian? What does it mean to have the right heart of the faith? What does it mean to live out the example of Christ to others? It begins with Jesus Christ calling leadership as an example to the flock And the members, likewise, are encouraged to go and be the light of Christ. So what we read here in these these qualifications for leadership, we should not just set off in a compartment, oh, okay, well, that's just for people who are going to be pastors, and that's just for people who are going to be deacons. That has nothing to do with me. No, I think it has everything to do with all of us. What is the heart of the Christian? What is a good life of a Christian result in. 
So, what Paul teaches here are three things. Number one, what should a leader teach? Because clearly the problem here is that the leaders were not teaching the truth of the gospel. So, number one, what does a leader teach? The second thing is how should a leader live? Clearly, these false leaders were arrogant. They were prideful. They were in it for the greed. Lastly, what is in the heart of good leadership? Now, you could also substitute these words for leader and leadership with what should uh, a good Christian be taught or what should a good uh, Christian teach? How should a good Christian live? What is at the heart of a good Christian? You could use this same idea here. Number one, what is at the heart of what Paul's message is here, not just in Timothy, but throughout many of his letters, in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, these pastoral epistles, Paul is actually teaching that the gospel is for those that the world would not think the gospel is for. The gospel is not for the eloquent and the rich and the well-mannered like these false leaders were teaching. The gospel really are for murderers and thieves. Ponder that for a minute. The gospel is not for the elite. The gospel is for those who are the opposite of the elite. The ones who are most in need of the gospel are those who are in most need of salvation. And who is more in need of salvation but murderers and thieves? Liars? (laughs) That's the gospel. The gospel is not for respectable people, according to Paul. The gospel is for those who are not respectable. Now, that shocks a lot of church folks, right? A lot, of, a lot of folks who are not respectable won't go to a church because those respectable people don't want the, them there. It's that simple. I've talked to many people in this room. Several of us are here because they just didn't feel like they belonged in any church because they, didn't, they weren't respectable enough. I hope that Sovereign Grace Baptist Church is a place where those who are not respectable come. (laughs) Amen? You know what? If they're a little rowdy, that's fine. Sometimes we Christians need a little stirring up. We need some rowdy folks. If the babies cry, let the babies cry. It's all right. Okay? And if necessary, I mean, I've seen mamas, you've taken your babies outside on the porch, that's fine. We've got a place downstairs. But you know what? Children are children. I love the fact that parents, many of the parents here, you're teaching your children to be respectable. That's still a good thing too. But all the more reason the gospel is for those who are not respectable. (laughs) Here's what Paul says. These false teachers emphasize law-giving and rule-keeping. And they emphasize that the righteous are those who were the elite. See, Paul here encourages the opposite. He encourages the emphasis of the gospel for the less than. Those who really, really deserve mercy is who need the gospel. And what Paul is teaching Timothy is, he says, to teach well and to lead well requires that a good leader is to understand the mercy of God in Christ to sinners. This is the first point I think we need to figure out here in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Anyone who is called to leadership to teach the faith to the church must himself understand the need for mercy. Anyone who is called into leadership into the church who does not know that they are a sinner in need of grace and mercy is someone I don't think is ready to teach the gospel. Some of the greatest teachers and and leaders of the church, not just in Christian tradition, but go all the way back even, even into the Old Testament, into the Jewish tradition. Who does God call time and time again? It's not the ones who are the elite and the, and the beautiful. He calls those who are the less than and the weak. And he rises, and he raises them up into great prominence in his kingdom. So when it comes to teaching, Paul is saying here that those who are called into this nature or or this office of overseer in chapter 3, the idea of overseer is also the idea of of the elder. Uh, The word here is the episcope. The one who is, in in our tradition, traditionally it's the pastor. But but I I do like to see that in the Baptist church, we're beginning to see more and more of a, a group of elders leading the church together. 
not, not necessarily a group of pastors per se, but a group of elders, men who will lead the church in teaching and in spiritual health. The leader here, when they are teaching, their lives must also match what they teach. This is the second point. Right doctrine must be matched with right living. The Christian, in other words, the words of the Christian, must also match the actions that they live out. Because a Christian's actions will teach either the truth or a Christian's actions will teach something else. Likewise, for the leader of the church, his actions will either teach the truth of the gospel or his actions will teach something else. And so Paul is making this very important point here. Look here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. Then we'll go back to chapter 3. This is what Paul says here about warning against false teachers. In contrast to what they're not teaching, he says here in chapter 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the whole basis of the letter. This is the whole basis of teaching here. Many feel like they're called into the ministry. And they just come up to the pastor and they... or. Worse off, their mother goes to the pastor. Little Johnny, oh, he, he's a good preacher. Give him a chance. Well, first of all, if the, if the young man is not confident enough to go talk to someone in leadership and say, I feel this calling, help me, and his mother needs to go, I think that's the first red flag. Amen? But the confidence of the leader here must be someone who understands that the charge of leadership is, this in verse 5 of, verse one, of, of chapter 1, the charge is love. The passion of the gospel is that of loving the gospel to the point that you love the people that you are there to shepherd. You are to exhibit an attitude of love here. And so one's living must exhibit a living of love. The charge of the Christian leader is to live out what is to be taught. And what is to be taught is love that is issued from their faith. Their faith in Jesus Christ and that salvation that God has given through the blood of Christ also then results in a life of loving compassion toward others. That is the first and primary point to be taught, but it must be lived. Now, the third point here is that the heart of good leadership is to not live for one's own pleasure, but to live for God's pleasure. A good leader, or you could say a good Christian, urges others to do the same. So a leader, according to Paul here to Timothy, is someone, based on what we've read here in chapter 1, is that the heart of good leadership is to live for God's pleasure. And what is God's pleasure? To love us enough to save us. And someone who is in leadership must experience that and know that personally. Otherwise, how can he inspire and encourage others in the same? A good leader urges others to follow in the same path that he, the leader, is going. And anyone who has ever been in any kind of leadership understands that to be a leader requires a lot of humility. And if you're not humble, I promise you the people that you lead will humble you quickly. Moms and dads, can we say the same thing about our loving children? We want to serve them. Think about it. Parents, you're leaders in your home. You want to serve and love your children, but how often will your children humble you as a parent? Just like that. It gets worse as they become teenagers. That's the job of the teenagers, to keep the parents humble. Amen? But humility, and think about it. Humility is actually an attribute of love, isn't it? We cannot love someone with arrogance and selfishness. We must love someone with humility and compassion. The idea here, this heart of love, is where we get the idea of charity in, in the Christian tradition. And, and why is this important? 
these three points here of what a good leader is to be has come out in Scripture and in church tradition time and time and time again. St. Augustine taught this often in his time and when he was alive in the 4th and 5th centuries. Augustine faced a lot of controversies in the church where there was a lot of false doctrine and a lot of false teaching swirling around the church. Just like what Paul is experiencing here in the New Testament with Timothy. There was a lot of false teaching happening. How do we know what is false teaching and what is good teaching? A leader must understand the difference. And basically it boils down to this. That which is false teaching does not teach the love of Christ. That which is good teaching emphasizes that love and compassion for others. If what is taught from Scripture does not result in the interpretation of this is love and compassion for someone else, it is a false interpretation and ultimately is the result of false leadership. It's actually a red flag. Anyone who is standing in the pulpit teaching or anyone who is leading a Bible study who does not result or conclude from the text they're teaching from an attitude of humility and compassion from that text has taught something that is not true. Augustine faces this in his time, just like Paul faced it in this time in the New Testament. Augustine had three major controversies that he wrote against. There was the Manichaeism, there was Pelagianism, and there was the Donatist controversy. These were three major uprisings in the church of the 4th century that taught false doctrine. Every single one of them taught legalism. Every single one of them taught selfishness. Every every single one of them taught some form of, I am going to decide what is right about this, and it always elevated the teacher of the sect. And Augustine, in writing against these, concluded this. The reason uh, reason that Manichaeism and Pelagianism and Donatism was false, these heresies of the church, was because they were not teaching Christ's love. That's what he concluded. So that's a real simple definition here of good teaching or bad teaching, good interpretation or false interpretation. If it is not centered on and resulting in God's love through Jesus Christ, it's a false teaching. And so he's saying this to Timothy as you're establishing churches, leadership, as you're appointing elders, and as you're appointing deacons. They must show that they know enough about the gospel through personal experience as a sinner themselves, that they can then motivate others through that salvation. That they can motivate others through the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ that they themselves possess. They have to know that. Now look here in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what Paul says. He now breaks down, and we see here evidence of two different offices of leadership in the church. We've talked about both of these in different uh, aspects for the last two weeks. In Acts chapter 6, we know that deacons were established as those helpers to the apostles so that the apostles could focus on prayer and teaching and the spiritual matters of the congregations, whereas the deacons took the responsibility for uh, the, the material needs, feeding those who were hungry, managing the benevolence, So there was a clear distinction here between two different responsibilities of leadership, both sharing the same mission of proclaiming the gospel. The first office here, those who were apostles, you could say now the office that comes into place here are the overseers or the elders. I will argue that the office of the apostle ceased when the first apostles died and the canon of Scripture was complete. Because the role of the apostle was one who was to proclaim the words of God to the people. Well, we've got that now. I will not agree with those who say that there are modern apostles. If there are, then I would be very, very leery of who they are. I would run them through a test. (laughs) Uh, Deuteronomy tells us exactly who is the true prophet and who is not. I would go to Deuteronomy and (laughs) figure that out. I would compare them to everything, and I don't know very many people that would pass those tests. Some prophecy from the Lord that is not in Scripture, that is supposed to be new to the Word. I would be very, very, very cautious there. 
So this, this office of elder or overseer, I think, is kind of the natural progression from the apostles into the bishops or the leadership or the elders of the church. The other idea here is the idea of the bishop. I mean, our, our, congreg- our tradition doesn't have bishops anymore, but we do have pastors, elders, uh, and deacons. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, some translations may say bishop or some translations may say elder, he deserves a noble task. It is a noble office to seek. But in contrast to the false teachers that uh, Paul talks about in chapter 1, these overseers, these elders, should not be seeking it under their own motivation. They should be drawn by the Holy Spirit into this. Usually discerned and verified by the congregation witnessing the Holy Spirit moving in them. Anyone who's ever been called into any kind of church leadership as a deacon or as a worship leader or as a teacher, teacher elder, they will, all of them will tell you, I did not want this. <laughs> There's a pretty good sign that, that, that God may be working on them. Okay, But it is a noble task. It's worthy of... of of possessing and pursuing if God is calling you to it. Verse 2. Now uh, Paul breaks down some of the criteria to look for in these men. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not a lover of money. Verses 2 and 3, we have to look at this not as a checkoff list, but more so as a as a, as the result or the or the natural progression of someone who is above reproach. These are natural attributes of someone who is above reproach. In other words, we don't need to go down through the list on the application and say, "Okay, are you the husband of one wife? Check. Uh, are you sober-minded? Check." Are you self-controlled? Check. That's not what we're doing here. It's more of a, a definition of a greater attitude or a greater spirit at play. In other words, the overseer's personality, his spirit must be in tune with God's spirit. And if that is the case, all of these things will naturally be taken care of. The idea of being above reproach, this, this first point, and I don't want to belabor a lot on this, but I do need to make it very clear. The husband of one wife. It is the same thing that we're going to see for deacons um, in, in chapter, I mean, in verse 8 and through 11. He's going to talk about the same thing there. The husband of one wife. First of all, we have to say from this that an elder or an overseer is a husband of one wife. Ladies, I love you, but you're not husbands. I don't know of a single woman who can be a husband. And so I think very clearly Paul is speaking here that the overseer must be a man. The husband of one wife. Now what does he really mean by this? What Paul is talking about here, about the husband of one wife, he's, he's, he's first of all, he, he also in chapter 2 lays down the differences between men and women in the church leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12-14, through 14, Paul does instruct Timothy on how women are to be placed in church work, in, in any kind of authority structure within the church. Paul makes it real clear in, second, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, women are prohibited from teaching and ruling men in the church. Verse 12 of chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness and self Now, unfortunately, this text has been taught incorrectly for so long that, ladies, I don't blame you for rebelling against men. I don't blame you. This is not a teaching from Paul of men who should be dictators over women. Neither does this mean that, ladies, you have no voice. Even though it does say women are to remain silent, that does not mean, ladies, that you have no voice. We must understand that. What this is speaking about here clearly is the role of men and women in the created order, but also 
in the fallen order. Paul makes it real clear here. God created man first. Women were created after man, but women also sinned first, according to what Paul says here. Look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So because of that order of creation and the order of the fall, Paul is arguing that the leadership should be men. Now, what does that say, men? That means that we have a responsibility to be Christ-like, to lead our wives with love and compassion, that we are to teach as God wants the Word to be taught, and to lead our homes in the way that God expects to be led, because Adam failed. Adam did have a role there in the fall. Even though the woman sinned first, it was also the man's responsibility to lead his home and say, no, honey, we are not going to eat that fruit. So he also failed. Now, back in chapter 3, verse 2, the qualification of an overseer to be above reproach must mean that he's the husband of one wife. Does that mean in order to be respectable, you must be married? Not necessarily. There are a lot of leaders in the church that have, were not married. Jesus himself never married. Paul himself never married. We have example after example throughout church history of single men who have been great leaders of God's kingdom. That does not mean that a, a, a leader must be married, but if he is married, he must be the husband of one wife. Now, this has been understood and taught that divorce disqualifies anyone from church leadership. I want to address that. I will say this. Divorce is not good. Anyone who's ever been through one will tell you. The children of divorce will tell you. It's not a pretty thing. Does that necessarily disqualify someone from church leadership? I'm going to say no, but possibly. I would say just divorce itself is not going to disqualify you, but a pattern of divorce I think might. Someone who's been married and divorced and married and divorced and I'm married, I'll, I love you, but I don't love you. That's a, that's a pattern of an attitude and a personality that is not good leadership. The thing about divorce, though, is in this context of the Scripture, divorce was not common in the ancient world. So it really wasn't even considered. Divorce just was not prominent in Roman culture and in Greek culture. It just did not happen that often. So it wasn't really a point to be debated. The problem is, in our current culture, in our modern times, divorce has become very dominant. That's why it has become a point of discussion. Anyone who has been divorced, I say, does not automatically disqualify them from leadership. I say we have to look at it case by case. Did the divorce happen before they were a Christian? Maybe they were divorced when they were a young man before they came to faith. Do we disqualify them? I don't know. We have to look at it case by case. I don't think so right off the bat, but we have to look at their heart. We have to look at their life. We have to look at who they are today, not who they were 20 years ago. I think that's the point. Now, again, I belabored that a little bit longer than I wanted to. I did bring this up uh, a week or two ago, but this idea of the leader, the deacon, the elder, they both must be a husband of one wife. What do you do then when someone who has been widowed their wife passed away. We have many, many examples throughout human history of plagues and death. Do you just say, okay, you, you've lost your wife through death, now you can no longer be a leader in the church? That was, that was told to me once. I lost my wife to cancer years ago. God brought me a new wife four years later. I was told I couldn't be a leader in the church because I was no longer married. I shook my head. I said, I don't understand that. Now, Wise people stood up and, and countered that and said, no, that's foolish. Thank goodness they did. But that's what I'm saying. That, that's, that's, the, that's the thinking that's happening. We, we get so bogged down in the details of our current situation of divorce and marriage that we forget the point that Paul is making here. He's saying, what is the spirit of the man who is called to the leadership? Is he above reproach? That's the point. 
Not whether he was married or not. Is he above reproach? That's the point. When we see here in verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, that's the theme. There were everything that follows that in, cha- in verse 2 and in verse 3 are really just indicators of what it means to be above reproach. But instead, we look at those, for- or those, those tree details and miss the forest here. They must be sober-minded. They must be self-controlled. They must be respectable. They must be hospitable. They must be able to teach. I think that's important if you're going to be an elder. Now, teaching takes a lot of different forms. Does that mean that you have to be a preacher? Not necessarily. Caleb teaches us through music. I've seen men teach in a Bible study session. I've seen men teach in a one-on-one discipleship situation. I think teaching can take various forms, but it means that the person teaching understands what they're teaching. They're understanding the gospel. They're understanding the word of God. They're understanding the point of love here. Verse 3, the elder must not be a drunkard. And I said, must not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. The point here is that an elder must be above reproach. That's what we've got to take away. Verse 4. The second part of being above reproach here is that he must manage his own household well. If he has a household, how does he manage his life? How does he manage his life with his, his spouse, with his children? He must manage his household well. And how does he manage? He manages with dignity. He manages by keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, he will. how will he care for God's church, according to Paul here in verse 4 and 5? Well, the point here is that the leader, the elder, must have an exemplary marriage. Now, does that mean that the, the elder's marriage is going to be perfect? Ask Rhonda if our marriage is perfect, and then decide if I can continue to be your pastor. I don't know of anybody who has the perfect marriage. But is it exemplary? Do they work through their family problems in a Christ-like way? Do they love each other enough to forgive each other? Do they run their household well? Are they a good example to others in their marriage? That's the point. The second point here is keeping his children submissive. Now, here's a point that I really want to mention There are many who will take verse 4 here and say that because someone's children are not Christians, they are not qualified to be an elder. Now, I want to address this. Clearly, we have the example of Eli in 1 Samuel, right? Eli's sons were rebellious, and God transferred his favor off of Eli's family and called Samuel and then later David. Does that mean that Eli himself was rejected by God? I don't think we see that. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 36, God clearly rejects the sons of Eli, and Eli himself actually rebukes his children. Now, do his, do his sons get to where they are because of Eli's failings? I think so. But when we read here that Eli himself in his old age calls his sons to task and challenges them and begs them, please don't keep doing what I hear that you're doing. You are blaspheming God. You see at the end of that that the sons rejected their father's advice. Now God's favor shifted from the family of Eli to other prophets. But that doesn't mean that God rejected Eli himself. That's what I see in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I think there's a difference here between young children and adult children in this idea in verse 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. When an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, I don't know about you, but I can't cause my 21-year-old men's sons to be submissive to me anymore. I can demand respect when they're in my house but I can't make them be submissive to me anymore. There comes a point as a parent, your adult children are adult children. 
Now I'm looking at my two boys. Amen? When they're in your home and they're growing up in your home, then I think there's a point. If your young children are rebellious and wild and you're not keeping them in some form of control and submission to the authority of the home, then I think you could question, are they qualified to lead the church? I think that is something to look at. But I have also heard it taught that those who have adult children who are not Christians are no longer qualified to lead. I've talked to men who I've, who I've I said, you know what, you are, you are a deacon. You're a servant at heart. Why don't you serve the church? No, my children aren't Christians. I'm not qualified. They just kind of totally discard the whole idea because of what something has been taught. I, I think we're, we get, again, we get so caught up in the legalism here and if Paul is condemning false teachers in chapter 1 for emphasizing legalism, why is he emphasizing legalism when he's describing the qualifications of an elder? The point here is, what is the attitude of the home? What is the attitude of the man in leadership? What is the spirit here? I hope that my two sons follow the will of the Lord for their lives. But boys, I love you. You're not going to keep me from preaching God's Word. Amen? Enough said. Let me move on here, and we're going to finish up verse 8. Now we're looking at a second office here, qualification for deacons. We're not going to have to really harp on too much here because the qualifications for deacons and the qualifications for elder in a lot of ways are the same. The attitude and the spirit of the man being called into leadership must be that attitude of Christian love that is then taught to the church by example. Verse 8, deacons likewise, again, that word likewise, in other words, they have to be like the elders. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. It's the same expectations of leadership. You're not to be like those false teachers that Paul is condemning. Verse 9, the deacons, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 9 is a verse that I don't think many ordination councils focus on, and I think they should. I have asked this question when I have sat on ordination councils for deacons. I've asked this question of those who are seeking ordination for the pastorate. I will point to verse 9. I'm the only one in the room who says, okay, explain to me the mystery of the faith. And they're stumped. And they say, why would you ask that question? I said, because Paul says to ask the question here in chapter 3, verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men, I have never seen one man be able to answer that question. What does that mean? I think the leader here, anyone who's called to leadership in the church, must understand the mercy of God to sinners, because that is one of the greatest mysteries of the gospel that anyone can fathom. How can an all-knowing, all-loving, perfect, holy God love sinners so much? That's the mystery of the faith. Look here at 1 Timothy chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 16, at the end of this chapter of the qualifications for elders and the qualifications for deacons, here's what Paul says. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Right, there's the answer to the mystery of the faith. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. Anyone who's called to leadership in the church must understand this mystery of the faith. How can Jesus Christ, holy, righteous, love us and forgive us and therefore proclaim God's glory? There's only one way to understand that, and that is actually to experience it. <laughs> Every leader must understand their depravity. Every man must understand that Jesus Christ did not have to forgive me. His blood was... I mean, he, God didn't have to spill the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for my sin. But somehow He did. 
I don't know why, but he did. That's the mystery. And that's the qualification of a good leader. Any leader who wants to preach the gospel, any leader who wants to serve as a deacon, must understand that key point in order to honestly love others. Without that, they're not leaders in the church. I think many of us in this room know of those who have been in leadership in other churches and we're shaking our head going, how in the world did they get on the deacon board? And, and further, how, why do they stay on the deacon board? And the answer always is the money. We're just speaking truth here, amen? So when it comes to the leadership in this church, as we are establishing ourselves as God's kingdom here on the corner of Wall Street and First Avenue, are we going to be known as that church that calls deacons and elders because they've got a good paycheck? Or are we going to call people into leadership who understand the mystery of the faith? I'm going to let that rest with you for a little bit. So as we're praying this through for the next year as a church, some men have expressed interest in being ordained. Others have not, but I'm going to talk to them because I see the love of God in them. I see that they're serving the church already. And we're going to begin that process at, by the beginning of the year. And I want us to establish this because, folks, for the last 12 months, and I've said this from the pulpit, and I've talked to many people here one-on-one, I'm tired. I can't do this by myself. Everyone's pitching in, and everyone's doing their thing, and I love it. But now I think it's time to get a little more structured, and I think it's time to be a little more ordered, and let's try to work together so that we serve each other well, and we proclaim the gospel. Amen? Lastly, I want to close with this point. Verse 11 and 12, the last qualification for the deacon, and nobody focuses on this point either, but it's the same point for the elder in verses 1 through 7. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. Ladies, if your husband is called into leadership, you are too. Enough said. Ladies, if your husband is called into being ordained in the church, it doesn't mean that the ladies will be ordained, but they are called to work side by side as the partner of their husband in ministry. Ladies, you can't be gossips. The last thing we need is for somebody in leadership to be fighting their wife at home because she wants to go blab everything that he talked about in the deacon's meeting. Let's, uh, serious. Amen? If, the, if there are things being talked about in, in leadership meetings, men, you need your wives to confide in, hey, I'm wrestling with this. Will you pray with this for me? But ladies, that doesn't mean you go out and share it to everybody. Some of the men are grinning and some of the women are going, yeah, I know those, some of those ladies. Yeah, Amen? There are things that leaders deal with and they deal with it because the flock doesn't need to. That's one of the callings of someone in authority. They deal with the hard decisions. They deal with the hard situations. And a lot of times that's dealt with behind closed doors in prayer. <laughs> Ladies, that don't mean that the world needs to hear. And guys, too. I mean, you could say this to the men. They don't need to be gossips either. <laughs> because the role of leadership in God's church is such a calling and such a responsibility. Paul starts off this whole passage in, verse, in chapter 3. It is a noble task to be called to. And he's contrasting here the good godly leadership that the church requires versus the false leadership in chapter 1 that he says is taking over the church. That's why he writes this. So Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, who are we going to be? Wheelie's going by. Are we going to be that church that 
focuses on the love of Christ in all that we do? Or are we going to be that church that wants to run politics? I don't think anybody in this room wants to, a church that runs politics. That's why many people are here. <laughs> we want to be a church that is biblical. We want to be a church that is godly. Hold me accountable. If I am not godly in my demeanor, if I am not godly in the way I treat my family, if I am not godly in the way I preach the Word, hold me accountable. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Dear God, Your Word is so wonderful. And we do need to be reminded, Father, often that we serve an Almighty God who had enough mercy (laughs) to pull us out of horrible, sinful situations. Your grace covers our sin. Now for that, God, I pray that you would remind us all in this room that that is the message that we live, that is the message we teach others, that is the message that drives our families and drives this congregation. And I pray, dear God, that you love us and teach us that. As we move forward, God, as a church, I pray, God, that you would be laying the groundwork, the foundation necessary on your word that we can stand firm for the truth of the gospel while still loving others. Strengthen those that you have called into leadership, Father. Strengthen those that you have asked to come and deal with with things in the church that must be done. I pray, God, that you would raise up good leaders. We have some men who are already good deacons. They just don't know it. We have some men who are good elders. And they need to be inspired and taught to. I pray, God, that you would just make this church yours. Shape us in the way that you want it to be shaped. Shape us, God in the way of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.